Welcome to the Blockdown Podcast, brought to you by EOK Digital, the number one blockchain PR and communications agency. Every week, we're sharing pearls of wisdom about the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. Don't forget to subscribe and review our podcast so we can bring you even more great content. All right, guys, we are back. Our next speaker is a professor of computer science at Cornell University and founder and CEO of Ava Labs. He is well known for having implemented the first currency that used proof of work to mint coins. He is also the co-director of the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Smart Contracts, IC3, which aims to move blockchain-based application from today's whiteboards and proof of concepts to tomorrow's fast and reliable financial systems of execution and record. His talk is named The Next 10 Years. Please welcome Emin Gunn Server. Gunn, welcome to Blockdown 2020. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, thank you all for, uh, for tuning in today during a pandemic. I will try to talk to you uh, for the next half hour about the future of blockchains, where we're going, where we are, and uh, where we're going to uh, end up um, uh, with, uh, with some luck if we play our cards right. So it's been about 10 years since Satoshi came up with this brilliant, brilliant consensus protocol. And it's been about 10 years of Bitcoin and uh, umpteen years of, uh, of, uh, of, of crap coins of different kinds. So where are we today? Let's go on to the next slide, please. So clearly crypto is here to stay. Um, you know, I hate to show any kind of a price action figure. It doesn't matter what the price is. This technology would be here, even if the price was zero, um, except we wouldn't be talking to general audiences. We'd be talking to techie audiences. But the technology goes far, far more broadly than that. It has the potential to re-envision finance overall. It has the potential to change the way uh, all of the, the financial system and business workflows work. Let's go on to the next slide, please. So blockchain is almost a household word now. Everybody's talking about it. If you were to walk down uh, you know, lower Manhattan, uh, pre-social distancing, you would see a bunch of people in suits and uh, they would be turning to each other and saying, hey, what is your uh, strategy for blockchain? So uh, let's see, the market cap of Bitcoin alone is, uh, you know, is 128 billion right now. Uh, some total, there's a lot of money in this space. Uh, amount of VC investment that's gone into various different startups is about 20 billion. But you know, none of that really matters. Uh, the figure that's really interesting to me is the organic investment, the crowdfunding money that has gone into projects in this area, about $20 billion worth. There are a lot of people here who believe in these projects and their, their ability to transform society and finance. Even Facebook is looking to issue its own cryptocurrency. So are many central banks. I just got off the phone with a very, very major central bank. We have a bunch of different discussions going on with at least a few central banks, even, even, you know, even this week. Um, the era of digital assets is just starting. We're at the beginning of this big revolution. Let's go on to the next slide. But if I look at the current landscape, what do I see? We see that new technologies give rise to competition frenzy. We see a lot of projects all making the same kind of noises. 
Everybody uses the same words, high throughput. I don't, I don't know if those people could even, even define throughput. Um, so, uh, you know, low latency, actually they don't say low latency because they typically cannot achieve low latencies. Um, but, you know, Justin Sun is out there pushing his stuff and so is a whole bunch of other people. All of the products become undifferentiated. They become copies of each other. And we have seen this explosion of crypto products. Almost none of them had any innovation behind them. They take an existing piece of code, let's say, let's say the, the Bitcoin code, change a couple of parameters, and voila, you've got, say, Litecoin. It's supposed to be silver to Bitcoin's gold. I don't know what any of those words mean and uh, why a digital asset would be, uh, would be silver, another would be gold, and so forth. These uh, coins that are being issued, this is the most important part, they're, they're, most of them are terminal. The entire point of the coin is to be that coin, nothing else. So therefore, they're there to enrich the people who push them. These systems are not enablers, and therefore they're speculative end products. So this is happening on the tech side. If I look at what's happening technologically, I wish there was more exciting things happening. Um, but bottom line, if I look at platforms, this is what I see in the platform space. The platforms have stagnated. They're slowly, they're not evolving fast enough. DeFi is a super exciting space. And there are very, very interesting things happening in DeFi, but the platforms are not really fast enough to serve the needs of DeFi and decentralized finance and other areas. At the same time, even as I speak, we're in an unprecedented macroeconomic climate. Many national economies have shut down. I, I live in, if I look around at the moment, there's nobody in, in moving around anywhere. Um, there's nobody doing, engaging in any commerce, uh, you know, to a first approximation. Astronomical amounts of debt are being created, both in private and in the public sector. Many weak companies, banks, and some national economies will collapse. And the flight to unseizable assets has already begun. So the climate is absolutely perfect for a move to digital assets. It's that just that the, the platforms that are there to support digital assets are, are falling short. Let's go on to the next slide, please. Three big hurdles um, are uh, really problematic for these platforms. Um, the, these three big uh, hurdles, in short, are scale. These first-generation platforms we have seen simply cannot support trades of digital assets at global scale. They cannot support decentralized finance as it is today, let alone how it could be if we had scalable uh, underlying infrastructure. They're not usable. They all offer the same lowest common, common denominator service. They copied pretty much everything that they do from Satoshi with small tweaks. There isn't enough innovation in the space. And they lack governance. They, they are incapable of evolving with the changing needs of users. Let's go on to the next slide, please. So let me give you a short, very, very short lecture on where we are um, uh, sort of academically or intellectually. This entire area of distributed systems, decentralized systems, doesn't have a ginormous history. I, you can become an expert in this area in six months uh, under the right tutelage. But let me give you the, the, the one, minute, uh, one minute shortened uh, redux. Area started in the 70s with people identifying uh, the need for consensus among multiple machines. Uh, people like Leslie Lamport and Barbara Liskov, shown here on the left, established this field, and they both achieved independent Turing Awards, the highest honor in my field of computer science, well-deserved for the incredible contributions they made to this area. 
they came up with numerous classical protocols. Those classical protocols are within this one framework where there was voting by every participant. And, uh, and the, as a result, they ended up everybody in the system having to know the identity of everybody else in the system. In 2009, Satoshi looked at this and said, you all academics, you've been working on this. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of papers, hundreds, maybe thousands of consensus protocols, all within the classical framework. None of that is actually uh, applicable to what I want to do because they're fragile. They require everybody to know everybody else. None of them scale well for the kind of thing I want to do. And he came up with his own consensus protocol. It came out of low left field. It probably would not have been accepted by any academic publication venue because it was so different from the, the, the established paradigm. And yet it established Bitcoin and it brought us the blockchain revolution. And for his efforts, Satoshi, uh, may he rest in peace, um, you know, owns a, a lot of Bitcoin and therefore a lot of money, about $10 billion worth. Now, uh, and that's where the field stood. There were small tweaks to uh, what Satoshi came up with. One of the most uh, notable ones is Ethereum. They changed this, the, um, the uh, scripting language to come up with a much more versatile system. Um, that certainly gave us the second enabler and the second explosion in DeFi. Um, but then otherwise, uh, the entire area was pretty much stagnant. In 2008, an anonymous group that calls itself teams, uh, a Team Rocket came up with a new consensus protocol. And this is the third big breakthrough in my area in distributed systems. Now, what's this breakthrough? A very different consensus protocol. It doesn't use mining. It's efficient. It uh, isn't fragile like classical protocols. It's robust like Nakamoto. And it's super fast. It scales like no other. It has incredibly low latencies, very high throughputs, and it's inclusive. It can accommodate millions of participants firsthand, and these participants can join with, uh, with essentially a, a cell phone if they so choose. They can play a meaningful role with a cell phone if they so choose. Let's go on to the next, um, the next slide, please. So if I look at the current existing systems that are based on mining, what we see are long confirmation times. Um, I tried to, to uh, trade a, a rare Pepe uh, two days ago um, just to, to show somebody how NFTs work. And um, I had to wait two hours. Um, for some reason, it took two hours for it to show up in my, uh, in my you know, well, I had to receive, some, receive one rare Pepe and send it on. The entire operation took two hours. They have very low throughput. That's why uh, the people who are behind these kinds of efforts are trying to, to turn to layer two solutions which have their own problems. They tend to be centralized. The entirety of Bitcoin's hash power comes from one company. And, um, and the entirety of that system is in the hands of 19 mining pools. Now, if all I had to do was accommodate 19 participants, you know, I could do so many easy things that don't require burning $5 billion worth of, uh, uh, of coins and giving them to, to miners. This energy consumption, not only does it heat up the planet um, and uh, you know destroy the, the polar ice caps and habitat for polar you know whatever polar bears and so forth, people can say, "Look, I got mine. I don't care. I do. Um, they might not, but um, but also it's just money money lost from the ecosystem. You can't build a store of value when the 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 overwhelming price action is always downward. 
If you just sit there, you're constantly leaking five billion per year. So that's a big problem. And if you're not, then you're opening yourself up to attacks. So let's move on to the next slide, please. Now, what happened in response to this? Well, in the last few years, everybody's excited about proof of stake protocols. And so what do they do? They go back to the 90s. They go back to classical protocols. You've heard of um, Hyperledger, Fabric. You've heard of uh, R3 Corda. These are classical protocols. EOS, classical protocol. ETH2O, classical protocol. ETH2O is pretty much EOS, uh, except it's sharded. So whereas you used to have one problem, uh, one scalability problem in Ethereum, now you're going to have 256 independent scalability problems in Ethereum 2.0. So that's what people are trying to do. These protocols themselves cannot scale beyond a few hundred validators. They trade off decentralization, and decentralization matters. If you don't believe it does, uh, just look at what's happening the, at the Senate hearings on Libra, and look at what's happening with cabal formation in EOS. People typically just very quickly form these cliques that are impossible to penetrate. If I wanted to deal with cliques that are impenetrable, I think the current finance system is perfectly capable of delivering such cliques uh, to the normal person. And they are, most importantly, they're not, they're not robust. They tend to be super fragile. We saw this when, uh, uh, when um, uh, Stellar ended up uh, you know, ended up not functioning for an entire afternoon when EOS had a whole problem. So these are needlessly complicated mechanisms, and uh, and they are not uh, they're inefficient. They don't accommodate uh, large numbers of participants. They tend to be very fragile. Let's move on. So there's a new kid on the block, and uh, that new kid is called Avalanche. It's a new consensus protocol family. I'm not talking about you know, oh, you know, whatever, we took a paper from the 1990s, we put some lipstick on it and we're serving it, et cetera. This is, we're going to do consensus. We're going to do it in a completely different way. It's leaderless. There is no mining. Anybody can participate. It's super fast, super efficient. So it yields a sustainable, green, scalable uh, consensus protocol of the kind not seen before anywhere else. So this is a major, major breakthrough in terms of science. Let's move on to the next slide, please. Okay, so if we were to look at uh, how Avalanche behaves, it's robust like Nakamoto. It's able to achieve latencies. It, it finalizes transactions within a second to two seconds worldwide. This is a number from our testnet from, with 2,000 nodes around the globe. So this is not like on somebody's laptop in a highly centralized system, we're getting these numbers. This is uh, across the globe in a very, very large setting. It's very high throughput. We can do smart contracts at many thousands of transactions per second. It's very lightweight. You don't have to do mining. You can run it on your phone. It's very low energy consumption for the same re reason. One of the very interesting things about it is it can withstand adversaries larger than 51%. It can't guarantee liveness in a setting where the adversary is so ginormous, but it guarantees safety. So it guarantees that money will not be double spent, even if the adversary is very big. So this is not something that, that anybody else can say. Um, and it scales, as I said, like no other. It can scale to very large numbers of participants, and it can scale to very large numbers of users. Uh, next slide, please. 
So, um, yeah, I mentioned some of these things. Um, the classical protocol family, if you've heard of, uh, you know, you might have heard of other people uh, talking about, uh, uh, about proof of stake systems that have some nice feature or another. This is different. So all of those protocols involve every node talking to every other node. You have to ensure that a, a quorum of representatives, a quorum of validators have uh, checked out and okay the transaction. And to do that, that typically requires everybody talking to everybody else. In the Avalanche family, every node talks to a small subset for a very small number of rounds. So this means that only a few hundred messages, only uh, about 100 messages are sufficient for a network of 10,000 nodes. This is unprecedented, unheard of. Nobody else can say anything remotely like this. For example, the Libra system, which was designed by um, my uh, student Ted Yin and his colleagues uh, over, over a summer when he was visiting the Bay Area. Uh, he worked on that system, then came back and said, well, you know, this is classical stuff. I just did that, um, but I want to work on something cutting edge. And he's now working on Ava. Um, so these systems, uh, as I said, they, Libra is targeting only 100 participants. Only Mark Zuckerberg and his 99 closest friends are in. Nobody else is in. Ava can target 10 million participants. The performance degradation is going to be non-existent or, you know, it's not going to be exactly non-existent. It's going to be very, very modest going from 10,000 to 10 million participants. Next slide, please. If we look at latencies, here is Bitcoin. That's about an hour. Ethereum for comparable security is about 500 uh, seconds. Algorand, which is a pretty decent uh, recent system, uh, has committee selection. It has this cabal formation built into the protocol necessarily. And this is classical, of course. So classical requires that cabal formation. And even with that, they're getting about a 50-second latency. Avalanche gets 1.2 uh, in this same comparable setting to Algorand. So things are finalized at 1.2 seconds. Next slide, please. If I look at throughput, again, we're seeing numbers that are incredibly high. Uh, we're, we're not talking about, you know, typically if I talk to a normal engineer in the, in the Valley, they say things like blockchain, isn't that just a slow database? Yeah, it is if you use a first generation blockchain. But uh, with Avalanche, these numbers are drastically different. With 2,000 geo-distributed nodes, we can do 7,000 transactions per second. And I remember people looking at me just deadpan like this saying, "We these are Bitcoin developers saying, we will never be able to compete with Visa. So why even try? Well, we tried and we did it. So it's possible to outdo Visa without compromising decentralization. Let's go ahead, please. So... Um, at the same time, we're getting, we're not doing a security trade-off. Sure, I could have done the same thing. I could have gotten any number uh, by centralizing everything on my laptop. And some people have tried that. And uh, that is not what's going on here. Uh, in contrast, as I said, Bitcoin has about 19 mining pools. Ethereum, at the time I did this slide, had 11. These days, it has like 30 or something. EOS has 21 block producers. Everybody calls that a cabal. Um, Avalanche can accommodate 10,000 to millions of block producers. The Byzantine tolerance threshold is configurable. We can withstand really large attacks against the system. And one of the most interesting things is because of the way Avalanche works, I don't have time now to get into the details of it, but there is no sudden loss of guarantees when, uh, when this, this uh, threshold, attacker threshold is exceeded. 
if you were to dust up an old protocol and uh, try to serve it to the masses, you will find yourself dealing with a classical protocol and all classical protocols have a one third bound. So if you have 100 people in it and 34 of them decide to attack your system, they are guaranteed to mess you up. They will cause a safety violation and uh, there will be a double spend in your system and that's pretty much the end of your uh, your system as we know it. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the way Avalanche works, um, here's what happens. Avalanche is typically configured for a particular attacker. The smaller you think the attacker is, the lower the thresholds are and the faster the system can work. That's kind of nice. But suppose you configured Avalanche for a comparable setting, for an attacker of size 33%. So if the attacker turns out to be bigger than that, suppose he turns out to be 40%. Um, if you were using classical, you'd be dead in the water and he would guaranteed win. In, class, in Avalanche, that's not what happens. Um, with, with a target um, size for the attacker of 33%, Avalanche says, I assure you that there will not be a safety violation for the next 20,000 years. Now, when the attacker is a little bigger, say at 40%, Avalanche says, well, look, I'm so sorry I couldn't live up to what I promised for an attacker of size 33%. He turned out to be bigger, and so now all the calculations you did cannot be met. Of course not. That's, that's how the math works. But you're not necessarily dead in the water. Uh, with a size of 40%, the attacker is expected to, he's not, we're not going to be able to uphold our you know, once, once in 20,000 years promise, but it'll be once every 5,000 years. You know, that's a very graceful way to degrade. The attacker has to be really, really big to, to succeed with any, any high probability. And it's very robust. So let's go on to the next slide. Um, so uh, here's a huge difference in the way we're architecting Avalanche and, and in the whole mindset that we bring to the ecosystem. Almost everybody else copied everything about their network model uh, from Bitcoin, from Satoshi. Now, what's that network model? You have a coin, you have a virtual machine that implements that coin, and you have a network that goes and implements that virtual, virtual machine, instantiates that virtual machine, facilitates the transactions between the participants. That's fantastic, that's really nice. Everybody else copies this. So you buy somebody's token, and then you run their VM, you've got this open network. And, um, and so what rule set are, is being enforced on this platform? Well, the only rule set is that one VM, nothing else. That one VM is not uh, beholden to any jurisdiction. It's its own thing. So you suddenly find yourself having to, to adopt extreme libertarian viewpoints, down with the state. Let's pull everything down. Let there be no more nations, da, 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 da. And you get into this crazy downward slope, at the end of which you believe that uh, everything should be uh, should be run according to Bitcoin's rules because that's the one thing that you, you know how to implement and you don't know how to implement anything else because your system doesn't let you do it. Ava is different. Ava has its own coin, its own virtual machine and its own network, yes. But it also supports any number of other coins to be issued on top. These coins are known and visible to the underlying system. These coins can come with their own VMs their own scripting languages that are specific to their function. So if you have a realist, fractionalized real estate coin, then you have a VM that can be fractionalized for that. If you have gold, you can have a VM fractionalized for that. You have credit default swaps, 
well, then you can have a VM that knows how to interpret the complex uh, covenants that go with typical CDSs. But the mo more importantly, not only do you have coins and specific virtual machines, but you also have the ability to control network participation. You get to say things like, to participate in my, in my, in my network for my coin, you have to, and then you can say things that you could not express in code. Now, what are things that you could say that you could not express in code? For example, you can say things like, you have to have more resources. You got to be a bigger machine. I'm not going to support Luke Jr.'s Raspberry Pis in the Florida swamp. I'm going to have bigger machines. Maybe I'll have fewer machines, maybe not, who knows, but it's going to be different. And voila, I'm done with the Bitcoin blockchain block size debate. That's simple on Ava. Or you can say things like, you have to be under US jurisdiction. You have to sign an agreement. You have to enforce a whitelist. You have to enforce a blacklist. All of these facilitate the issuance of compliant legal digital assets. And they give full, the full control over the entire digital asset lifecycle to the participants. That's why when we go to Wall Street and tell them about the Avo platform, they turn on at this point. They say, okay, this was the reason why I tried to do a consortia. This was the reason why I tried to do a permission network. In fact, I did a proof of concept uh, with a bunch of these established companies. And you know what? I abandoned it. That's what they typically tell us. And, uh, and so we find ourselves talking to people who tried permission networks, gave up. And uh, because, you know, they'd go nowhere. Nobody wants to be part of a consortium. All consortia are fragile themselves and fall apart themselves. Let's go on, please. Okay, so we want to support many different kinds of coins. We envision a, a future with thousands of coins. The native token provides the core system security, but anybody can create a coin. And it's as easy as a five-minute uh, on the web kind of a clicking operation. A lawyer should be able to do it. Ava enables many scripting languages and many, many platforms can coexist. So I can issue an Americans only coin for, um, uh, for you know, fractionalized real estate in Brooklyn, while you can issue uh, Europeans only data for tracking, you know, whatever uh, within Europe subject to GDPR. And when you want to trade those things or have them communicate with each other, Ava can facilitate this. The AVA stakers benefit from the value generated by these coins. Let's go on, please. Next slide, please. And uh, finally, AVA Avalanche's operation lends itself to natural governance. Uh, the system essentially builds a crowd oracle. The way it works is by constantly polling the crowd and creating a system that, uh, that finds what, uh, what would very quickly converge to, to a consensus. Um, so key parameters that other systems have to bake in can be dynamically adjusted in AVA. So the minimum stake amount, minimum staking period, minting rate, and so forth, these are all adjustable. The system has a, has a hard cap of the, on the number of coins, but the way we approach the hard cap can be changed. At times when there is high competition in terms of minting from other external entities, we can increase the minting rate. At times when we want to preserve value, we can decrease the minting rate. And, uh, and we, again, use the unique feature of avalanche consensus for enabling these economic decisions. Next slide, please. So uh, my final thoughts on this. The internet was introduced in 1962, um, and I was on it in, early in the 80s, 
and it underwent many, many cycles. So it's never, ever the case that we stick to the very first instantiation of a new technology. The explosive growth follows new tech stacks. Crypto is no different. It represents a natural evolution of money from archaic tokens that represent value to internet native value creation to transfer to storage across people who differ in jurisdiction, who differ in what they want to represent. And three things are critical enablers for this next, next big explosion and next big wave. And by the way, that big wave is going to topple many incumbents, many intermediaries who provide little value, and it's going to open up the playing field to a lot of nimble startups. Uh, but the three things we had to solve were scale and performance, usability and interoperability, and flexibility and governance. With Ava, we believe we have taken a very good shot at all three of these critical enablers. Crypto will change the financial world fundamentally, and I hope you will join us as we embark on this journey. Thank you. Amazing. Um, it, it's been an honor uh, to hear you speak. Um, I've actually seen you speak at several concert, uh, uh, conferences uh, across the globe ever since uh, I started uh, within the crypto industry. Um, yeah, listen, we don't have time for questions, um, but I want to tell just a quick story. Obviously, you're a very well-regarded individual in the country of Turkey. Um, it, it's, it's an emerging market and, and a huge, huge place of cryptocurrency and blockchain adoption. Um, yeah, we, we did a project and a huge portion of, of our community comes from Turkey. So we, we have a token that we pay out on our da data annotation platform. Um, so they, they structure data of natural language processing stuff. And Turkish is the main contributors for all of our computer vision tasks. But also now we've moved into translation tasks in an incredible way to build this pipeline uh, because the Turkish community is just so overwhelmingly supportive of this technology. It's the most exciting thing to think about um, where Turkey's going to be. I actually traveled to Turkey. I, I just needed to tell you this story because I, I think it, I just, yeah, I needed to tell it. I went to Turkey for a couple of meetings in Izmir and I tweeted about it. And all of a sudden our Twitter just blew up and a big group of a whole bunch of individuals from Ankara drove all the way to Izmir to come meet me and take me out and talk to me about the importance of this technology, where they're at with our project, the other projects, uh, connecting me to people in Turkey. So it's, it's the most exciting thing, and it was an honor and a pleasure to listen to you talk. Uh, we really look forward to, to seeing you again. I especially look forward to seeing you again, and hopefully we can connect pretty soon and, and talk about uh, all kinds of stuff, crypto and blockchain. So thank you very much for being with us at Blockdown uh, 2020. Indeed. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Fabulous. All right, guys, we are moving on. We've got a couple more things for you. We have a super after party happening in digital virtual reality 3D land for Blockdown 2020. There's dance partners. You can communicate with people. You can do all kinds of stuff. Um, so, yeah, we're going to take a short, short little break, and then we will be back with our next special guests. Thanks for listening to the Blockdown podcast. To connect with us on social media, buy tickets for the next Blockdown event, or find out more about EAK Digital, head to the show notes for further information and links to everything. See you next week.